I do want to welcome everybody to Sardis Baptist Church. I am really uh, glad that you've joined us here this morning. Uh, This morning we are going to uh, begin our Advent series entitled, The Road to Bethlehem Leads to Calvary. The purpose of this series is to help us better see how the birth of Jesus Christ fits into the grandeur of God's plan uh, for sub- to provide salvation for all mankind who would place their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We want to look at the big picture. Sometimes we get so focused on the cradle, which is great, and Christmas and everything like that, that we forget that, that this day that we celebrate, this birth of Jesus, is part of God's grand scheme of things. And we need to make sure that we never lose sight of that. Because if we lose sight of it, it becomes just a one-day holiday. But if we understand where it fits into God's plan, it is something that we will live with for the rest of uh, the year. I want us to see the big picture of God's plan laid out before us like folks used to lay out a map on a table to plan a road trip. And as I was thinking about this, I was going, I'm going to pull out a map, I'm going to spread it out here, and I'm going to put it on this table. And then I, I realized, you know what? I would bet there's a significant number of people in this auditorium who have never spread out a map on a table and used it. Okay, they would look at this and go, what? How do you use it? Because, you know, what do we do today? We, we get the GPS, you know, we type in the destination address, and then we have this voice that is annoying sometimes telling us, uh, go here, turn here, get in the lane. You're in the wrong lane. Get in this lane over here, right? And so we uh, just, we, we don't have the sense of a map. But when Kathy and I were married, not too many years ago, we had to plan out our trips using a printed map. We would sit at the table with the map before us and figure out each leg of our trip. And actually, it was quite fun. I think it's part of the that, uh, fun that we don't get with the GPS anymore. Uh, we, we would choose various routes to take based on what we would see. I mean, we would say, oh, hey, we want to get to here to here. But then we would say, hey, there's one of those brown signs over... Everybody know what the brown sign is? That's one of those historical markers. We could say, hey, there's one of those brown signs, so yeah, it's going to take us a little bit longer, but we can adjust here, and we would map out all the brown signs. We would make sure our kids got the stamps in their books and all that kind of stuff, and it was all done on the map, planning each leg. It was fun to see the whole trip taking shape on the map right before our eyes. And I hope as we spend time together during this Advent series, we will enjoy seeing the road God has mapped out for us for our salvation, starting in Genesis, winding through Bethlehem, going up the hill to the cross on Golgotha, and ending at an empty grave in a similar way that Kathy and I had a chance to see our map laid out before us, seeing our trip laid out before us. So let's begin our road trip together in the same way that Kathy and I always begin our road trips together with prayer, asking God to bless our trip. Father God, we come to you this morning. We thank you so much for our salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you for what this season means and how it fits into your grand plan in time and history. We thank you, Lord God, that uh, we have the opportunity to look at your word to see how you have laid out your plan. And I thank you, Lord God, that we have the fellowship of believers here as we share music, as we share God's word with each other. 
and as we share time with each other in Christ's name, amen. So one of the questions that I asked uh, myself when thinking through this series was, where do I begin? I mean, that's a, I mean if, we, if I think this is a big map, where do I begin in the map of history trying to help all of us see the, the grand scheme? How do I draw everyone's attention to the same place on the map so that we can begin to see how the road to Bethlehem leads to Calvary? And one word came to my mind. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, you will also be somewhat familiar with this word. So everybody please turn with me to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 14. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 14. To set the stage here, Mary and Joseph have traveled to Bethlehem, and Mary has given birth to Jesus as the angel said she would. And now we're going to read what happens to some shepherds in a field outside of Bethlehem. And so follow along as I start reading in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find him, find a babe wrapped in a swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with those whom He is pleased. In verse 11, we find the word that came to my mind. And in verse 11, if you're there with your Bible, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. A Savior. We find another reference to this word in Luke chapter 1. If you want to turn back to Luke chapter 1, And look in verse 30. Keep the word Savior in your mind. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And this is when the angel presented himself to her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and the bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus. Jesus means the Lord of salvation. So in the name Jesus, in, the, in the, the meaning of Jesus, we understand that there's this idea of salvation also. We see the idea of salvation in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, that there's going to be a Savior of mankind. And then in 1 Timothy, we're going to jump back into the epistles. It's the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. Throughout the Bible, it is clear that Jesus, the babe in the manger, came to this world to provide a way of salvation for mankind. He came to provide salvation for mankind. And the question that needs to be asked, even though some of us think it's very obvious or that the answer would be very obvious, is this, does mankind need a Savior? Does mankind need a Savior? As Christ followers, we sometimes take this for granted, don't we? If you've been in church for very long, you would, actually, you would come to that conclusion that mankind needs a Savior. 
But we need to understand and uh, remember that not everyone believes mankind needs a Savior. Mankind as a general whole believe that they don't need a Savior. They believe mankind is self-sufficient, capable of correcting all the problems mankind will encounter with the goal of providing a greater life for everyone on earth. The majority of mankind does not have any idea or any sense or any feeling that we need a Savior because we feel we can do what? Save ourselves. Save ourselves. If there is no real sense of needing to be saved, then there's no reason to feel a need for a Savior. And this really shouldn't surprise us in the world. But it should surprise us when we see so many Christ followers living as, they have, as if they have forgotten that mankind needs a Savior. They live day in and day out with no real sense of urgency that so many of their friends, their family, their co-workers, classmates, and teammates desperately need a Savior, and they have no idea that they even need a Savior. There's no sense of urgency that we need a Savior. The people in my life who are not Christ followers need a Savior. The world needs to understand they need a Savior. When the Christmas holidays come, they have no real sense of thankfulness. This is Christians, many of them, in the church that leads to a reflective worship because they are so distracted by the festivities of the holidays instead of the babe in the manger who saved them from their sins. And we all have to deal with this. It's so tempting and it's so easy for us to slip and slide into just doing Christmas because it's a holiday, it's time off, it's family time, it's food, it's all the things that we, shopping and everything, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves until we forget that it's about a Savior. There needs to be a sense of urgency, even at, especially at this time of year, when we think of the babe in the manger that we need a Savior, mankind. Most of us here this morning already know that mankind, as I said, needs a Savior. There may also be some here this morning who may never have heard that they absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, need a Savior. There may also be people here who aren't sure that they even know the Savior after they've met Him. And so what I want to begin to do this morning is to make sure that everyone here knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible clearly shows mankind is in desperate need of a Savior because without one, there is no hope. Let's start at the very beginning. This is what helped me to understand that Savior helps lead us to the very beginning. Because thinking on the map idea, the first place we're going to start is in paradise, which we know of as the Garden of Eden. Because that sets the whole tone for us needing a Savior and coming to the conclusion that we need a Savior. So if we were looking on the map, <laughs> we would now take the marker and we would circle paradise because that's where we're going to begin. And so everybody turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm not going to give you a page number for that because it's actually the very first book in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to actually look at Genesis 1 and 2. As I said, the first two chapters of Genesis set the stage for mankind's realization that they are in desperate need of a Savior. These two chapters reveal how God created a perfect world for mankind to live in and to have fellowship with Him. And we're not going to read chapters 1 and 2. You can go back and do that at home if you're not familiar with it. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see God at the very beginning of verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. 
And what we find as we go through Genesis chapter 1, that God spoke into existence time, matter, and space out of nothing. And He spoke it into existence. Helps us understand the power of our God. And as he goes through chapter 1, I want you to put your fingers on the chapter, uh, on the verses as we go through them. Look at verse 10. Put your finger on verse 10. And it's t- he's letting the waters in verse 9, and God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered. And he goes through, and he's going to make the waters in dry land. And how does he end verse 10? And God saw that it was good. Now understand something. When God says something how, is good, how good is that? A perfection that we can't even begin to understand because we've never even come close to any, experiencing anything like it. He said it is good. And then let's drop down to verse 12. He's gonna, in verse 11, he's uh, going to talk about plants yielding their seed. And look at verse 12. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to his kind. And what does he finish? And it was good. You getting a sense of purpose here? It is good. Go to the end of verse 18. He's setting up the lights. What's the end of verse 18? And God saw that it was good. Turn over to verse 21. He's uh, creating the fish. So God created the great sea creatures. And how does he end verse 21? And God saw that it was good. And then let's go over down to verse 25. And God's making the beasts of the field and of the earth. And how does it end? And God saw that it was good. And look at verse 31. Here we have God is making man. He's finishing up His creation act by making man in His image, creating them as male and female. And what does He say at the end of verse 25? And it is very good. So God finishes up with this crown of His creation, which is mankind. And He says, everything I've created, including mankind, is what? Very good. So now, this is God saying it was good to begin with. And now this is God saying that this is what? He adds an adjective to the front. Very good. How good is it at the end of chapter 1? Perfect. It's perfect. So in Genesis 1, uh, it ends with man being made in the image of God, which sets him apart from all the rest of creation. And in Genesis 2, God keeps this idea of man being made in the image of himself in mind, but he narrows the focus onto that idea of man being made in the image of God. It goes into more detail on what it means to be made in the image of God in chapter 2. And as you look through chapter 2, we see that... Again, a more detailed explanation of creation of man and woman. We see how God forms Adam and how he puts him to sleep and and brings uh, Eve to him, uh, forming her out of his rib. And here we have Adam and Eve in this perfect world. A perfection that we can't even begin to imagine. And so many times when we read this, and so many times as we are looking and reading through the first parts of Genesis, it has become so familiar to us that we don't stop here and reflect for just a minute. And I want to do that. 
Let's, let's pause here and let chapter 2 and chapter 1 sink into our minds. God created a world with absolute perfection. The sky, the air, the seas, every animal, every fish, and every plant was what? Perfect. Then there was Adam and Eve, perfect bodies designed never to die, perfect relationship, no sin to deal with, perfect companionship, perfect food, perfect climate. This is at the end of chapter 2. Perfect everything from God's perspective. So many times we sit down at a restaurant and say, oh man, that steak was perfectly grilled. That's not the perfection we're looking at here. We use that term so loosely today, but when God uses it, it's, it, it needs to astound us that God would claim that something is that good. Then we also see that in these two chapters that God provides a meaningful job for Adam and Eve. In chapter 1, verse 26, just jump back there real quick. And God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over, all, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They were to rule over all of God's creation on earth. Perfect man, perfect woman, perfect world with a perfect job. And look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Perfect job. It wasn't just experiencing, but he says, you rule over and you work in. Perfection. Let that sink in. That's where chapter 1 and chapter 2 stop. But now, we're planning out our next stop on the map. We're in the town of perfection, the Garden of Eden. And now the next stop on God's route, on God's plan here, is rebellion. That's the next stop on the, on the, on the map here. We go right into chapter 3, and it starts back actually in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Okay, we have to understand something here. This is the first time in God's Word that we see this word, command, used. This is the first command that God gives to mankind. And He said, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We find God giving His first moral command to mankind. He has given mankind the ability to choose to worship Him, to choose to obey Him, to choose to acknowledge Him as the Creator over the earth that they were to rule under as His vassal rulers. He gave them moral choice. He says, don't eat. You choose not to eat of this tree. And if you do, there's going to be a consequence, which is death. It's his first moral command. But then we'll turn back over to chapter 3. We see man making this moral choice. Look at chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent, which is Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Satan tempted Eve here with a promise of divine enlightenment, with a promise of becoming like God himself. And her desire to become like God, she disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden tree, and Adam chose to follow her. They disobeyed God's moral command not to eat. And we must not, we need to stop here. We must not miss the cataclysmic result of their rebellion here. All of creation was changed. All of this perfection was changed in this one act, in just one Change from the last verse of chapter 2 to the first verses of chapter 3, the whole world changes. And perfection is gone. And man is in rebellion. All of mankind would suffer the results of their moral choice against God's command. You see, we need to grasp the change between absolute very good perfection and in a matter of just a few verses, it goes to complete, utter non-perfection. Because of one, what we would consider small moral choice. So what were the results of mankind's rebellion? At the moment of the rebellion, separation from God and death entered paradise. At the moment of their rebellion, separation from God and death entered paradise. God promised Adam and Eve that they would die if they disobeyed and ate of the tree. And when they ate, they didn't immediately die physically, but they immediately died spiritually. We know this because their relationship with God changed. They no longer wanted close human communion with God. Look at verse 8. Before we read it, just Think of the change here. Perfection. A relationship with God like none of us have ever known. And look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can you imagine the the change of having a perfect relationship with God to not even wanting to be in the presence of God because of a moral choice. That's how much it changed. They were alienated from God. They no longer had the desire to be in the presence of God. They no longer sought to be with God and all of mankind inherited their spiritual death. And we know that man inherited this spiritual death because we find in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We find in Romans chapter 5 that this one act, this once rebellious moral decision, 
of Adam and Eve pass this spiritual death onto everybody who sits in this audience. Everybody. Do you grasp the extent of what has happened here? I can't even imagine Adam and Eve living the rest of their lives, and they live for hundreds of years after this event, knowing that close fellowship with the Lord, and also knowing they destroyed for the rest of their lives that close relationship with God. I can't even imagine what they saw on the backside of this. I no longer have a relationship with God like I did. And then we also see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you, and he's talking to Christians, uh, Paul is, and he's telling them that they were this before they were saved, and you were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. So this spiritual death passed all to all humankind. We see Paul referring to it that we were dead in the trespasses and sin. We all inherited this death. We have never had a relationship with God like Adam and Eve did before the fall. The truth of these words is demonstrated because we also find in Romans that all of mankind now seeks to hide from God. Remember how they walked with God in the garden? And remember how after the fall, after they disobeyed and made a moral choice to eat when God said not to eat of the tree? And they tried to hide themselves? In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we read, As it is written, none is righteous. No one, no, not one, no one understands. And what's it say? No one seeks for God. Everybody who has been born on this planet after the fall has never sought God. We try to run from Him. We try to cover ourselves from before Him because of what Adam and Eve did. This spiritual death that separates man from God also led to physical death that all mankind experiences. This is where physical death came from. We are dead spiritually, and spiritual death led to physical death. Physical death was part of mankind's curse from God because of Adam's disobedience. Since you're in Genesis, take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. This is when God is handing out the curses and because of the moral choice. He's talking to Adam now. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. They were spiritually dead, and what does God say about their physical being right now? They're going to die, because that's what it means. You're going to go from what? Dust to dust. And you know why? We know that's true. How many of us have seen death happen? And it happened very, very quickly. Turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a chapter that I label as the chapter of death. As the chapter of death. When God created man, in verse 1, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them, and He blessed them and named them a man. And when they, were create, when they were created. So he's referring back to where? Genesis chapter 1. 
And when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son, and he goes all the way through. Verse 4, the day of Adam after he fathered Seth was 800. Verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Look at Seth, verse 6. I'm just going to talk about Seth. Look at verse 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And when Enosh lived, after he fathered Sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Every instance except one in this list, we see that phrase, and he died. What's the point of chapter 5? We all die. And it started right after the fall. We all die. Not only spiritually, but physically. All mankind inherited physical death from Adam. And what God had declared very good right after He formed mankind is now described, they are described very differently. No longer are we described as very good. No longer are we part of that perfection of creation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3. We've read the first part of this. We're going to continue to read it. Romans chapter 3, we're going to start at the second part of verse 10, we've already seen this, but look how we are described now, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their tongue, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a big description change between, from when he said, it is very good to Now there's nothing worthwhile in mankind at all. How big of a change is that? You see, until we see that change and understand that change, there's no reason for us to feel a need for a Savior. So many times we act and live like we're still living in the Garden of Eden and we're really not that bad. But God says that's not true. He says that again. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 5, it's not just... In Romans, in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, another description of mankind. Now the works of the flesh, that is referring to uh, mankind, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's us. We're no longer very good. We've died spiritually. We're going to die physically. And there is no worthwhile good left in us because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And we inherited that. At the moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion, mankind was separated from God and death entered paradise. Mankind cannot do anything in and of himself to fix this condition. There is no hope of defeating spiritual or physical death. How many of you think you're going to defeat physical death? 
We're not. We, we know that, right? It's a given thing. We kind of put that bit to the back of our mind and we don't really think that, you know, how many days I have left? We don't want to think like that, but we all know that we are going to die. In the next 50 to 60, 70 years, okay, all the adults, most all the adults in this congregation will not be here because of Adam's sin and Eve's sin. At the moment of the rebellion, Adam and Eve also lost their perfect relationship. I can't imagine the pain that came into their lives. We don't know how long they lived before the, the, before the, the fall, but they were perfect. Adam and Eve were without sin. There is not a spouse in here, male or female, that can look at their significant other and say they're without sin. If you've lived with them very long, you know you would be lying through your teeth because you've watched them sin. True? Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I can't imagine the pain here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. So they've disobeyed God, and then their eyes, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. For the first time, they had to hide stuff from each other. For the first time, they realized that there's something different, and this is not the same man, and this is not the same woman that I have known all this time. Can you imagine living in a perfect relationship with a perfect spouse and then a one rebellious act? It's all gone for the rest of your life. There will be no more perfect relationship. They became ashamed of their nakedness and there would become a tension between them. We understand that tension because... We see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we see this tension. To the woman, he said, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. For the first time, there is a power struggle within the relationship. For the first time, the woman wants to play, take the authority of the man, and the man is going to dominate her. Can you imagine that change from perfection to this picture? At the moment of the rebellion, Adam and Eve lost their perfect relationship, and from that time on, all of mankind has suffered the loss of perfect marital relationship. At the moment of the rebellion, the earth lost its perfection and literally changed. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verses 17 and 18. And, Adam, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And for the first time in Adam's experience of living in the perfect garden, the earth would not be a companion to him. Not only were we changed because of the rebellion, but the earth was changed. Creation itself was changed because of the rebellion. In Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, 
helps us see some more of this. For the, crea- for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All the creation groans underneath the weight of sin. One moral choice changed all of this in the perfect world. At the moment of the rebellion, earth lost its perfection. And as you can see, the results of mankind's rebellion against God is, a cataclys- is cataclysmic. And with all of this in mind, consider the question again, does mankind need a Savior now? Do you have any doubt that mankind needs a Savior You see, we move from perfection on our trip, and we move to the the town of rebellion. And this town of rebellion, we understand as we move out of the town of rebellion in the the following weeks, we're going to understand that we need a Savior. There is no hope for mankind. There is no way for us to ever get back to the perfection of Eden, no matter what somebody says. All of our lives, death, both physical and spiritual, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the earth, all changed. And there's no way to get that back. So does mankind need a Savior? The answer is a resounding yes. Mankind cannot cannot defeat death. Mankind cannot fix their broken relationships. Mankind cannot fix a broken creation. Mankind has no hope. It is only when someone sees the hopelessness of mankind that they can begin to see their need of a Savior. And it is only then that they begin to look for a Savior. And that is where the world has missed the point because the world still thinks that we are good enough to fix it. And we know from God's Word that's not going to happen. There's no hope of that. It is then that we may begin to consider next week's question. Since mankind needs a Savior, has God promised to send a Savior? That's next week's question. Since we understand now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we need a Savior, we need to ask the question, has God promised to send a Savior? It is often hard to keep focused on why we celebrate this holiday season because we, there are so many worldly distractions that insidiously weave their way into our lives. Many of these distractions are not bad in and of themselves, but when literally hundreds of them crowd into our lives, they become like an early morning fog that obscures the road we are driving on. And, this, and they, these distractions obscure the real reason why we celebrate Christmas. You see, we know now that we need a Savior. Next week we're going to ask, are we sure that God is going to send one? But until then... We need to reflect and say, what do I do now? Not just today, not just as we move into next week, but how do I begin to understand this and keep this as the forefront of my life as a Christ follower? One of the ways for all of us to keep some of the fog at bay is to focus on God's Word throughout the holiday season. You and I need to be in God's Word. We need to be in more than just Luke 2, which is a fantastic chapter, the birth of Christ. Most of us could probably tell the story of the birth of Christ with, our, uh, with no help at all. 
But we need to be in God's Word to uh, review what's happened. Review the perfection in Genesis. Review the, the, the absolute change, the cataclysmic change in chapter, between chapters 2 and chapter 3. So that it drives us to understand that we need a Savior. And for those of us who have met the Savior, oh, Christmas takes on a whole new meaning. For those of us who have met the Savior and also are, are so distracted, being in God's Word will help us put Christmas where it needs to be in our lives. And then for those of us who, uh, those who are sitting in the audience today who may not have ever understood that they need a Savior, over the next few weeks they're going to get to see that not only do they now know they need a Savior, but that God has provided one and has identified Him as we go through this week. The road to Bethlehem leads to Calvary, and that road starts in Genesis. All of us have inherited a rebellious spirit. All of us have sinned against God because of that spirit. And everyone here this morning needs a Savior, but not just any Savior. We need a Savior who can save us from our sins. And there's only one person who can do that, and that's the babe in the manger. I pray that you will be here with us for the next four weeks. Father God, we have seen some difficult stuff this morning. We have come to a point where we understand that every member of mankind, every human being, needs a Savior because of the sin the rebellion of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed you. Lord God, I pray that as we move through this series that we will be more and more encouraged as we see how you have provided a way of salvation for us, that you have provided a Savior, one that can bring us back into relationship with you where we no longer have to hide Oh, Lord God, if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who doesn't understand what we mean by needing a Savior, doesn't understand that Jesus Christ is that Savior, that they need to accept Him by faith alone, I pray, Lord God, that they would come and talk to me, talk to maybe a friend that they're sitting with, talk to a deacon. Lord God, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their hearts, to their need of a Savior. Help them to feel the desperate need of a Savior. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this season where we can focus on the grandeur of your plan. In Christ's name, amen.